This is a Clark University podcast. The circulation of grief and rage is also a kind of commentary on the state of affairs in the world. They are the thing that calls out to other people. They are the thing that we are expressing when we don't have words to express other things. To come back to the things I read out of the relationship between Medea and the chorus, Grief and rage are doing a lot of work there to like pull them in towards one another. It's like Medea's wails and cries are the thing that brings the chorus to her in the first place. And I think if we think about the George Floyd protests, grief and rage are also doing a lot of work there. Dozens, maybe scores of American cities are bracing for new protests and potentially new violence tonight pushing the pandemic out of the headlines. Outrage over police killings of black people has fueled unrest from coast to coast. How do we balance the different obligations that we have to one another, but also like to our own liberation? I think that's part of what's happening in the George Floyd protests and like Black Lives Matter more generally. It's thinking about like, okay, I want and need to exist in this world, and yet the conditions of the world are set up so that I can barely exist, if at all. Danielle Hanley, a professor of political science and women's and gender studies at Clark University, is an expert on solidarity and Greek tragedy. Though Greek tragedy dates to 5th century BC, the stories unfolding in these plays have helped Danielle analyze contemporary movements. She's working on a book project on the idea of choral politics and can explain some of the solidarity found in the Black Lives Matter movement through the unity on display in Medea, a play written by Euripides. The story follows Medea as she seeks vengeance on her husband Jason as he leaves her for a Greek princess. Medea is mentioned in the Odyssey. It's like one of the places that Odysseus ends up. All of his sailors get turned into pigs by Medea, so she's like known as a sorceress. In the play, she has married Jason, and the play opens and Jason has left her for the princess of, of Corinth, which is where they have found themselves after a, a whole series of events. Spoiler alert for Medea, but she kills Jason's new lover. She kills the king of Corinth, who's the lover's father. And then she, sort of in a weird turn of events, kills her children. In the original Medea myth, it's usually told that the people of Corinth kill her children as like punishment. So it's an innovation by Euripides to have Medea be the one doing the murdering. Most people are like appalled by this. And I was really fascinated by it. Like, what does it take? What kind of conditions have to exist in a person's world to get them to make the conscious choice to murder their children? That's essentially what happens in Medea. And I think that that's kind of fascinating if you think about it from a feminist point of view, thinking about the like confinement of patriarchal structures, the way that women were treated in ancient Athens, but you could extend that up to today. So I think like most people are aghast by the turn of events in Medea. And I'm just sort of fascinated by all of the little pieces. And in particular, I'm fascinated by the relationship she forms with the other women in the chorus and how that sort of helps facilitate everything that's going on. I'm Melissa Hansen, a producer in Clark's communications office, and this is Challenge Change. In the story, a chorus of women initially support Medea as she retaliates against Jason's infidelity. For Danielle, 
this served as an example of effective solidarity. Here's how Danielle defines effective solidarity. For me, affective solidarity is maybe one rung below a more obvious form of solidarity. It is solidarity that grows out of the circulation of emotions, but specifically those emotions that like call out to others that something is wrong here. That there's something wrong about the world, there's some kind of injustice. And so the emotions that that sort of experience produces, the way that they move through crowds and like rooms and people, it does something to like pull other people in. It's not about the scale, it's about the kind of, of action that's happening. It doesn't have to be a protest for George Floyd. It could be a group of people advocating for a particular thing happening in their small town or in their city or on their college campus. So I think affective solidarity for me is the solidarity that forms through that circulation of emotions. Now, back to Medea and the chorus. When she tells the chorus that she's going to murder her children, which happens after the other murders, they are like, you absolutely cannot do that. This is a place where there's like a disidentification with Medea, and yet they don't stop her. And when I talk about affective solidarity, part of what I'm talking about is that there is a kind of bond that forms between Medea and the chorus. They don't want her to kill her children, and yet their support leading up until then, it's still functionally allowing Medea to like make these choices that are essential for her own liberation. We wouldn't necessarily name it as solidarity, as like a, you know, standing together, and yet it is facilitating Medea's actions in a similar kind of way. Finding liberation can be a complicated and layered journey, one in which people are motivated by grief and rage. Sometimes it it requires horrifying or problematic or, or challenging or disruptive behavior in order to like take one's power back and having to negotiate what those things look like. I'm not saying that like Medea should have killed her children, but we have to take into account all of the spectrum of conditions that she's existing in in order to, to think through the event grief and rage are both this like mode of communication between people in these like oppressed or, or disenfranchised or marginalized positions and also like mechanisms through which we might challenge those systems. Effective solidarity isn't inherently feminist. However, Danielle does turn to feminist thinkers to support her work both in terms of affective solidarity, but more generally, the feminist character comes from the character of the work that's being done. Some thinkers in my work, Audre Lorde, Maria Lugones, Gloria Anzaldúa, Bell Hook, these are all women of color feminists who are sort of thinking about the productive value of anger. Lord has a famous piece called Uses of Anger, um, and Lugones has a chapter of her book Pilgrimages called Hard to Handle Anger. And in both of those pieces, these thinkers are laying out that there's a bunch of different kinds of anger. And I think that is really helpful in thinking about the role of anger in political life and also being able to recognize that like, yeah, sometimes anger is absolutely divisive. And also sometimes people manipulate anger so as to make it divisive. 
Events in Washington have taken a violent and tumultuous turn in the past few hours, as thousands of supporters of President Trump stormed the US Capitol building, venting their anger at the victory of Joe Biden in the presidential election. They forced the evacuation and lockdown of Congress itself, where lawmakers were all set to approve the election result. A common critique of Danielle's research is that movements led by oppressors could fall under the definition of effective solidarity. The January 6, 2021 insurrection at the Capitol, for example, was a collective fueled by emotion gathered to do what they considered righting a wrong. I'm not interested in, in writing about the anger of the dominators, but I recognize that it's there and like, January 6th is a great example of like, yeah, Yeah. so, and like, that's a great example. So anger is not the unique property of the marginalized. But if we think about marginalized populations and the limitation on access that these populations have to resources that might help challenge power structures, emotions become a really important resource there thinking about the context and then thinking about who is angry and what the purpose of their anger is, that to me is helpful and feminist thinkers are helpful in terms of like parsing some of the nuance of that. Danielle has been interested in Greek mythology since childhood, but it wasn't until her graduate studies that she realized it could be incorporated into her academic work. I was talking about this with my mom recently that one of the first books that she remembers me obsessing over was like a children's version of Greek mythology. Epic stories have always been an important part of my life, whether they be tragedy or religious texts. So it was something that I was always interested in. It wasn't actually something I realized you could write about as a political theorist until a little bit later on. While effective solidarity can be successful, Danielle notes that some people will always resist change. There's something really important about the circulation of emotions in those spaces where you are are physically part of something. It's not necessarily that there has to be the change. The people who are in power, who benefit from the structure as it stands, are never going to want it. Structural change takes a long time, but also I think about affective solidarity as like opening doors to enacting forms of change. To learn more about political science at Clark, visit clarku.edu slash political science. Challenge Change is produced by Andrew Hart and Melissa Hansen for Clark University. Find other episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. One, two, three. Clark! <laughs>